Hello there, this is episode number 109 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for joining. I'm William Armstrong speaking from here in Istanbul. In this podcast, we hear from authors of newly released books on Turkey and the region. In fact, we're not actually hearing from an author of a new book in this episode. Ayşe Zarakol published After Defeat, How the East Learned to Live with the West back in 2011. But I think the themes of the book remain very relevant indeed. Zarakol is a reader in international relations at Emmanuel College at the University of Cambridge. And her book is a very stimulating account of how a sense of stigma has dogged the way modern Turkey engages with the world and with the West, as well as comparative cases of Japan and Russia. Rather than a work of dry international relations theory, Zarakol's book is a very original attempt to effectively peer under the psychological surface, looking at how state elites and the public in Turkey have responded over many decades to the experience of adapting to Western norms following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the hands of various Western powers. That defeat forced Turkey to confront the idea that it was somehow inadequate or less than the West, a sharp shift from previous centuries when the Ottoman Empire felt equal or even had a sense of superiority to it. But before we get into all that, a few points of order. Remember, if you haven't already, do consider supporting the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Membership on Patreon gets you various extras, including transcripts in both English and Turkish of every interview published on the podcast via email as soon as the episode is published. I'll also send you transcripts of the entire Turkey Book Talk archive, which includes a number of extra interviews not previously published on the podcast. Members also get access to an exclusive discount deal, which gets you a whopping 35% off the cover price of books published in IB Taurus's very extensive Turkey and Ottoman history category. Turkey Book Talk members get a special code for a 35% discount on over 100 books in that series of academic and general interest titles, including physical books, pre-orders and e-books. Finally, members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself covering Turkish and international fiction and poetry, history, politics and journalism in the Middle East and Europe. That whole archive used to be available online, but nowadays a Turkey Book Talk membership is the only way to access it. To become a member, just pledge a minimum of $3 per episode via Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account. New episodes are published every two weeks, so membership will cost you no more than $6 per month. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then you'll certainly be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge that $3 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. Members only get charged when a new episode is published, so there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Aisha Zarakol. In the same week that we spoke, a far-right Greek MEP called Ionis Lagos caused outrage in Turkey by tearing in half a Turkish flag that it brought to a session at the European Parliament. The move was angrily condemned by Turkish officials and dominated headlines for a couple of days. And as I watched the fallout, it did bring to mind many of the points that Zarakol mentions in the book. So I started by asking her to talk about the reaction to this incident as a reflection of some of the ideas that she talks about in her work. In some ways, yes. I, I didn't follow it too closely because, as you know, this, this week had so so many <laughs> news events going on. And Turkish foreign policy is filled with incidents like this. In the second edition to the Turkish version, I, I talk about the toilet brush incident with Iceland. I don't know if you recall that one that happened last year. Turkish football players went to Iceland and somebody tried to interview one of them as a joke with a brush. And that became a big event as well. So 
uh, in some ways, what happened with Greece, as you say, is not unique. Uh, and I guess the way it fits into the framework of the book is, in, in the book, I talk about how Turkish state identity uh, is formed in response to stigmatization in the modern international order. And as a result, Turks are hypersensitive to what they consider to be international slights, uh, especially by Western actors. Now, it's it's an interesting question whether Greece, you know, fits into <laughs> Turks' understanding or category of the West. I think it's a bit a relationship with Greece, a bit more complicated. And I think Greece itself, maybe Greeks themselves don't know whether they are comfortably in the category of the West. So that could be analyzed further. But I think this hyper-sensitive nationalization, which, uh, which is produced from a young age by the Turkish education system, is definitely a response to stigma in the modern international order. And every now and then it finds, you know, incidents like this to kind of like a live wire or electricity current every now and then it catches in response to some international slight. There's a word that you use there and it comes up almost on every page of the book and that is stigma. Yes. And that really is a crucial concept, I think, to understand really. Could you explain why it's so important in the context of nations, really, states, Turkey specifically? Yes, so that's a term I borrow from sociology. I'm, I'm myself an international relations scholar, theorist, and stigma as developed by American sociologist Irving Goffman. It's a concept basically saying, Goffman says, you know, every society has its expectations from its members, certain behaviors, certain markers, certain features that are defined as normal. And those who deviate from those expectations of what's considered normal in that particular society are stigmatized, they carry a stigma, and they know that they are stigmatized because they are members of that society as well, and every interaction becomes between a normal, quote-unquote, person and a stigmatized person becomes loaded because both parties are aware that something is deviating from expectations. So I took this term and I applied it to international politics because, especially at the time I was writing the book, international relations was emphasizing very much theories that explain state behavior by only looking at material indicators, you know, states, powerful states, armies, economic power. And of course, those are important elements of international politics. But I, I thought, you know, having grown up in a country like Turkey, that material factors only explain part of the behavior of states like Turkey. I thought, you know, we could go to sociology, maybe work with concepts like stigma to explain why Turks are so sensitive in world politics. And then, you know, I found other cases uh, in the book. I compare Russia and Japan and trace the root of such behavior to 19th century, uh, mostly in all of these cases. And since the book has been published, I've talked to people from other places that say yes, uh, stigma, stigmatization explains my country as well. So I think it's, it's a generalizable kind of dynamic, especially outside of the West. One of the reasons I like the book is because it's very different from sort of typical dry international relations, you know, political or historical writing, really, because it talks basically almost about a sort of political mass psychology almost, um, rather than dry theory. It almost feels like in the book, like you're putting the country in the shrink's chair, almost, in the psychiatrist's chair, trying to diagnose, you know, deep mass psychological complexes that are carried by these countries, including specifically Turkey. 
Yes. Well, thank you. I, I guess I, I am doing that. I mean, I, I'm coming from a more sociological perspective in the sense that I'm, you know, looking at larger societal dynamics, international societal dynamics. But I am, in a way, bringing a psychological approach to explaining state behavior. And I, I mean, I'm not the only person in international relations who does this, but it is re- a relatively recent trend. I think you're right to characterize uh, international relations writing as generally being more more dry. But that's is changing, I would say. You talk also in the book about the importance of uh, self-consciousness almost. Mm-hmm. Um, Turkey is acutely aware of being almost outside the established order and everything that it does is in relation to getting into this established order or redefining that order. So its position really in, in, the, international, in, in the international order is not assured. It's constantly painfully aware of its own position really. And this, is, you know, this makes it hypersensitive to sort of slight, insult, questions of honour. I thought that was really a keen insight, really, because that is, it explains so much about what we see and have seen for years in various issues that have flared up. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, this concern about status and standing is very much driving behavior of state behavior. And I've done, you know, since I wrote this book, I've done more work on international hierarchies. And I, I would say, especially countries that are ranked in the middle of a social hierarchy with some potential to go up, those are the countries that are especially concerned with their status and, you know, how they're being treated by others. And I think, you know, in addition to stigma, we could, we could use that general psychology because that's also transferable from, you know, individuals. I mean, you, you could talk about middle class individuals being especially conscious about status and respect more so than those who are ranked higher or, or lower. And I think the same is true for countries as well. I'm going to quote from the book here. You say at one point, quote, people who have grown up in countries whose modernity has never been in question may not fully understand how all-consuming the stigma of comparative backwardness may become for a society, how tiring it is to conduct all affairs under the gaze of an imaginary and imagined West, which is simultaneously idealized and suspected of the worst kinds of designs, or how scary it is to live continuously on the brink of being swallowed by a gaping chasm of Easternness, which is simultaneously denigrated and touted as the more authentic, more realistic choice. Could you just tease out some of the ideas, I suppose, that are contained within that paragraph? Uh, seems to get to the core, really, of the argument. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes to the foundational narratives of the Republic. I mean, on the one hand, the West is uh, held as responsible for, you know, why the you know Ottoman Empire collapsed, the independence war, etc. So it's it's held as a threat, an enemy, uh, not to be trusted. But at the same time, the identity narrative is we must join the West, so this doesn't happen again. So you're holding these two seemingly contradictory positions simultaneously. And at the same time, you know, there are those who advocate, yeah, let's give up this westernization project, or let's own our authentic selves, quote-unquote, uh, let's turn eastward. But that's not a you know satisfying option either, as long as the world is organized uh, in the matter- manner it has been for the last... 200 years. So that's not a real choice. And many people are scared of letting go of this westernization ideal. So it's it's kind of an existential dilemma. And I think, you know, sitting where I am right now in Cambridge after <laughs> official
until Brexit, I think that identity, you know, it's not as if, you know, Britain doesn't have its own identity dilemmas, but it's a different one. Brexit, something like Brexit couldn't have happened in Turkey because it, it can happen in a country that's relatively comfortable in its, you know, Western identity, that leaving something like the European Union doesn't threaten the core claim that, you know, Britain is part of or the UK is part of the West. Nobody's questioning that. Whereas, you know, Greece, after the Eurozone crisis, couldn't really leave the European Union because Greece is more like Turkey in those ways. I'm going to quote again, quote, just like individuals, some states have coped with potentially stigmatizing labels more calmly than others. Turkey is not one of those countries. The emotional trauma inflicted by the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, which came toward the tail end of the century in which Turks internalized modern standards and their own stigmatization, has made Turkey a state that is obsessed with international stature, recognition and acceptance. Why is that? You know, what is it that distinguishes Turkey from somewhere? I mean, you compare it with Japan and Russia in the book, but mm -hmm. there are other examples that we could talk about as well. You know, somewhere like Korea. South yeah. Korea went through a similar top-down rapid modernization in the 20th century, and it had this strong sense of catching up, really, with the advanced West, I suppose. Yeah. But it doesn't seem to have developed the same neuroses, the same paranoia. What is it that makes Turkey so special, I suppose? <sighs> That's a difficult question. I mean, it's one that's, you know, bothered me all my life and academic career. I think maybe the experience of the Ottoman Empire, the proximity to Europe and having lost what, you know, the Ottoman Empire was, and in the rapid manner it happens from the perspective of the people who lived through it, who does not necessarily have these, you know, decline narratives going back centuries and centuries, you know, that we've projected onto them. I think maybe that's, that's why it was so traumatic. Right now I'm working on a book called Before Defeat, Rethinking the Decline of the East and the Future of the West. And in that book, I argue that there was kind of a world order centered in Asia, Eurasia, before the rise of the Western order. So I'm, I'm tracing an international political order, so to speak, in Asia from the 13th centuries to the 17th century. And that order collapsed as a result of a number of developments in the 17th century. States that were part of that order, like the Ottoman Empire, survived, but they lost a sense of belonging to a larger world. They turned inward. So I think there is kind of a historical backdrop to all of this that goes back some time. And then, you know, in 19th century, that historical backdrop starts interacting with, you know, European narratives of civilizational superiority. Ottoman internal narratives of or worries about decline start resonating with uh, European or Western treatments of the Ottomans. And add to that mix the rapid dissolution of the empire at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th. Uh, and then you have kind of a mix of narratives that suggest that something is very, very wrong with the empire. And then, you know, the world that people have known and have taken for granted has unraveled. And I think the fact that it happens in the beginning of the 20th century, where nationalism is also kind of finding its footing in, a, in an extreme way all over the world world, including Europe, kind of cements that trauma of that moment into the national narrative. So states that constructed their national identity narratives earlier seem to have fared better vis-a-vis -vis the international order. So I think that, that it also made a difference that this is, you know, the 1920s, 30s that these historical accounts are being produced. And then from then on, it's, it's constantly reproduced throughout the 20th century. 
I don't know, thinking about thinking about the book again and the the diagnoses almost that we make about stigma and hypersensitivity. It's actually al- almost why I'm always rather shy or reluctant actually to pass sort of sweeping judgment on many things here. <laughs> now, I've been living here for 10 years and I'm increasingly aware of these sort of tides of emotion under the surface and almost feel like you condemned anything that you say as an outsider. It's liable to be interpreted <laughs> in the wrong way or I don't know. It's a constant dilemma that I, I feel... <laughs> Yeah, I'm. All, I mean, you know, I've been living abroad for many years. I left when uh, when I was seventeen, uh, but I do go back often, and I'm struck by, you know, actually how successful the national identity production and reproduction is. I think, you know, a lot of things don't work in Turkey, but somehow, and this is not necessarily a good thing. This this message of you know stigma and trauma and the national identity being defined around these parameters that I discuss in the book and that that we've discussed today. That's that somehow is passed on to each generation through the centralized education system. So regardless of, you know, political leaning, most Turks are, you know, sensitive in the manner that you describe, and they will take offense at things that most citizens of other countries won't. I mean, of course, each country has its own sensitivities or hot-button issues, but I, I think you're right to make the observation that uh, you did. And I mean, I, I wasn't free from it either. You know, it's, it's taken me uh, many years of living abroad writing various academic books as kind of self-therapy to maybe get over some of this. I mean, I don't mean this to come across as if, you know, I'm looking down on my you know fellow Turks. Uh, I think part of what I was trying to show in this book by comparing Turkey to Japan and Russia and other places to, to indicate that, you know, this is not something intrinsically wrong with Turks or, you know, people who've grown up in Turkey, but something that's produced by the conditions of the modern international order and, you know, this Turkish state's response to it in terms of, uh, you know, education and history and so on. You also talk about Japan in the book, and Japan is a very interesting comparison because in Turkey, often Japan is sometimes seen as a more successful modernization story mm-hmm. in a way. People often talk about it as being a sort of almost very, very successful, very technologically advanced, very, you know, high human development and whatnot. And it's been through a similar process of trying to catch up with the West, I suppose, and has surpassed it in many ways. But um, it's developed rather more successfully, I think it's fair to say, than, than Turkey. I mean, talk about comparing these these two cases Turkey and Japan Yes, I think, I mean, I think those are fair characterizations. I mean, what drew me to the Japan example is it shows that you can be economically prosperous, very successful member of the international order and still not feel like you own that international order. Again, I'm not, you know, an expert on Japan necessarily, but if you read the scholarship on Japan, you see that some of the dynamics I identify in the Turkish case that extend from 19th century to the present are also still present in Japan, no matter the economic differences. Uh, You see that uh, in the case of, for instance, um, Japan basically has taken back its apology over the treatment of comfort women, Korean comfort women in World War II. It has some of the same, you know, sensitivities vis-a-vis, you know, the West and the sensitivities about being accused of historical crimes that you see in in the case of Turkey. So, yes, it's not an exact parallel and I explained that in the book. Also, the time Japan was defeated by the West, the modern international order had become uh, a bit more open to you know non-Western states anyway, so its incorporation was uh, smoother than Turkey's. But still, I mean, the fact that you can even compare these actually very different countries in this way suggests to me that the framework is uh, is useful. 
situate Erdogan in this picture for us? Where does he fit in? As I read the book, I kept reflecting on him and sort of his worldview and that of the people around him and that of many of his supporters. It seems to reflect many of these neuroses that we've been talking about here. Yes, uh, I mean sometimes people think you know if you if you reject something then maybe you you are you know so if if Erdogan is rejecting the West or as 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 the account is in Turkey uh, about Erdogan and people from his background they are Islamists or they don't uh, they don't accept the West so does that mean they are you know free from stigma have they freed themselves from it What I argue in the book is that whether you embrace something or <laughs> reject it if you if that thing is your primary motivator, uh, you're shaped by it to the same extent. So Erdogan is kind of the, you know, the mirror image of the Kemalists in that way. On the one hand, you have an ideology that's trying to overcome a stigma by adapting itself to the desired norms of, of the West, uh, of Western international order. And on the other hand, you have uh, a person who seems to reject that, but he's still, the motivator is, is still, the referent in his mind is still the same thing. So his behavior is also shaped by a reaction to that background. In this case, maybe more more of a reaction to the Turkish secular establishment than the West itself. But I don't know. I mean, that that goes into issues of you know individual psychology. So I'm not qualified to speculate on. Now, the book was written ten years ago, and it seems that the international picture has changed quite significantly since then. At that point, I suppose it was just around the time, really, of the uh, financial crisis, but mm-hmm. it really hadn't bitten yet, and the consequences yeah. of it hadn't really played out. Um, and still, there was this rather dominant idea of the West as being this homogenous thing that was quite unified and, and solid. And since then, we mentioned Brexit earlier, we've also had the election of Donald Trump, of course, and there's been this sort of general sense of decline, really, uh, of the West, relative decline, at least. And of course, China has risen in that time or has continued to rise. So I suppose the categories that we're talking about, West, East, have been mm-hmm. uh, shifting ever since the book was written. And now they're in a completely different place. And Turkey is, I think the process was already in, in play when you, when the book was being written, as you talk about actually in the book, this sort of new sense of forming its own sphere of influence, I suppose, and mm-hmm. trying to redefine its position. And in that sense, you know, the, the, the international environment has changed quite a lot and is continuing to change. I wonder if you could just reflect on that, how that reflects on the book how the shifts in the international system and Turkey's position in it, how that reflects on the um, on the thesis that you describe in the book. So it's actually quite quite remarkable the distance we've traveled in the in the last decade in terms of the durability of the international system, the Western-based international order seems to be kind of fraying at from within and without. So I'm dealing with that question more directly in, in the book I'm about to finish now before defeat, trying to draw parallels between uh, the loss of you know an Eastern-based order and what may happen to the Western-based order now. So you know if the West ceases to be the core of the international system, which it has been for the last 200 years, uh, then obviously the the dynamics, foreign policy dynamics that I analyze in the book uh, will no longer apply because then we will have lost the principal uh, social hierarchy that has organized international relations for the last 200 years and and actors will have to readjust. I would would have thought if you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said you know that's likely to happen at some point. I, I, I didn't foresee 
see that it could happen so quickly. But it doesn't, I mean, in, in terms of the theoretical framework, the theoretical framework still survives because, you know, if we're talking about social hierarchies and some actors being socially privileged in world politics, whereas others being stigmatized, that's, that's true of any order. So eventually some new hierarchy will, <laughs> will uh, emerge. If we lose the Western international order, something else will replace it. You know, it could be China. And then states that act like China or look like China will become the socially privileged states in the world, in world politics, and others will be stigmatized. So that general dynamic uh, will continue to uh, apply and explain dimensions of international relations. Having said that, I should say, you know, just China rising or becoming, you know, a great power to parallel the United States or something, that by itself doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the world has become Eastern-centered or Chinese-centered. Because as long as China plays by rules of the Western order, as long as it's a nation-state, as long as, you know, the rules of the game haven't changed, then... Western norms or norms of the last 200 years, let's say modern international system norms continue to apply. So what I'm talking about in replacement of, you know, social hierarchy is something bigger, something deeper. Uh, and that may not happen so, so quickly. It may take decades, if not longer. And um, finally, the book has been translated into Turkish. Uh, I think the second edition has just come out. And I just wonder if you could reflect really on the reception of the book in Turkey, how that's differed perhaps from the reception in English. What has been the response to it? You know, have people, how have they reacted to the arguments uh, that you make? I think it's been received well in Turkey, but one thing that's misunderstood at times is my purpose in writing it. I mean, I did not, when I was writing the book, I did not primarily have a Turkish audience in mind. I was trying to actually address international relations scholars and convince them to take these types of social dynamics in world politics more seriously by using the example of Turkey, a case I knew well, and Russia and Japan. So in Turkey, the book is read more as a book about Turkey which is fine because it, it was, you know, its secondary purpose was that. Uh, but I always encourage Turkish readers not just to read a chapter on Turkey, which may be somewhat familiar to them already, but to read other chapters as well so that the big picture emerges and that they recognize that some dynamics they think are unique to Turkey are shared by other states as well in varying degrees, but nevertheless shared. In my work, I'm always trying to encourage this type of broader thinking and comparisons beyond Turkey's immediate region because only by you know contextualizing our issues can we <laughs> try to start to overcome them. And the new book is uh, have you finished it yet, or when's that uh, going to come out? It's almost finished. Uh, it's under review right now again at in Cambridge University Press. So hopefully next year by next year. You know, academic publishing takes a long time, so I would say twenty twenty one. That was Aisha Zarakol. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 109. If you're interested, I would also recommend dipping into our archives. Back in May 2017, we published an episode with Jemil Aydan on his book, The Idea of the Muslim World, which is a very interesting book talking about how the very idea of the Muslim world as a unified thing or an idea is actually a very modern concept. It emerged really, according to Jemil Aydan's argument, in the 19th century in response, basically, to 
to the ascendancy of European powers and the rise of modernity. It's a very interesting book, very stimulating. I would recommend uh, dipping into our archives to listen to that because we touch on some of the same themes. Our next episode in a couple of weeks is with Honor Ishi of Bilkent University in Ankara. We talk about Turkey-Russian relations, specifically during the Second World War. He's just published a book on that subject. It talks around some of the same issues, psychological issues even, uh, that we talked about with Aisha Zarakol in this episode. So do keep an ear peeled for that. While I've still got your attention, remember to check out Turkey Book Talk's new partner, Turkey Recap. We're not financial partners or anything, we're just trying to give each other some extra exposure basically, because Turkey Recap certainly deserves it. Turkey Recap is an email newsletter put together by journalists here, Razier Akkoç and Diego Cupolo. It's a very useful weekly one-stop shop that concisely packages together all the major developments in Turkey over the past seven days. Dropping into your email inbox every Thursday, Turkey Recap also includes links to interesting articles as well as some some excellent puns search for turkey recap on twitter to subscribe or follow the link that i will put in our show notes including at armstrongwilliam.wordpress.com remember if you're a fan of turkey book talk consider becoming a member on patreon to support us membership gets you that ib taurus bloomsbury book discount transcripts of every interview transcripts of the entire archive and access to an archive of 231 book reviews written by me for all that just pledge three dollars per episode via turkey book talk's patreon account also do please rate or review turkey book talk on itunes or whatever podcast platform you use which also includes spotify now follow via twitter or like the facebook page and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so please send any recommendations feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com in fact this very episode came as a result of a suggestion from a listener luke kelly so many thanks to him but until our next episode of turkey book talk in a couple of weeks thanks to you all for listening Pretending.